0: Welcome to the Share Life podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. In this episode of Share Life, I'm grateful to be speaking with C. Kevin Rowe. Say hello, Kevin. Hi. Um, Kevin is an author, John Templeton Prize winner, Fulbright scholar a Lilly Faculty Fellow and a George Washington Ivy Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Duke University Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. Now, how did we get connected? So in February of 2020, per the direction of one of my close friends, I read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius Aurelius, as my first dive into Stoicism. So wanting a systematic understanding of the Stoic tradition, I stumbled across your book, one True Life, the Stoics and Early Christians as Rival Traditions, sorry, One True Life, yeah, um, it not only gave me what I was looking for, but opened up a new world to me. I quickly picked up a copy of your previously published book, World Upside Down, reading Acts in the Greco-Roman Age, before finding out you had secretly published another book at the end of last year called Christianity Surprise, A Sure and Certain Hope. So in this discussion, we'll dive into all three works uh, as much as we're able to, um, but I'd like to actually start by talking about the connection between the three. So your three books, World Upside Down, One True Life, and Christianity Surprise, all have an organic um, unfolding from one to the next. So what are the connecting threads between these books? Did you choose to publish them in that particular order? And am I missing any threads by any work that you've done prior to that or that I'm not aware of? So let's start there.
1: Sure. Uh, first of all, Jason, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be with you and, and to have conversation together. Um, I um, There is one book before that that actually I should mention. Um, my first book was called uh, Early Narrative Christology, mm-hmm. um, The Lord and the Gospel of Luke, and it was a revised version of my dissertation. Okay. Um, And the reason that I mentioned that is because there is a kind of trajectory that emerges from that book through the the next three and is in a way um, something that I'm trying to do, which is to follow uh, belief about who Jesus was and is as it moves from a kind of internal focus uh, in the earliest Christian text to a kind of um situation with respect to the external culture Um, and not that christians were isolated from the external culture but what is it that they believed that then made them distinct as a group so that when you looked at something you thought "Hmm, what is that and eventually Mm -hmm. they get the word christian for what they Mm -hmm. were so
0: and would you um, would you say that that like what comes to my mind is the fact that paul was um Essentially isolated for three or four years before he actually went out into ministry. Is that kind of an example of what you're describing?
1: Uh, it's hmm, a good question. Um. Well, let me let me try try it this way and see if this helps. So, the the first book focused on um, how did the Christians think about Jesus as Lord? Yeah. And when they thought about that, what other implications were there? So the, the, the second book then went to the implications. This is the one you read called World Upside Down. Yeah, And that was really a book more about implications for kind of daily life in the Greco-Roman world. Mm-hmm. If you were neither Christian nor Jew and you became a Christian, what sorts of attachments would you have? What sorts of attachments would you lose? Mm-hmm. What kind of cultural disruption would be there? What kind of new bonds would be created? Um, if you suddenly stopped worshiping all these other gods and started worshiping just one, what would that do? Um, And then from there, the the next book, the One True Life book that focused on Stoicism was really more about how does the Christian intellectual tradition, as it gets going, interface with another very, very strong intellectual tradition. And in the first uh, century, um stoicism around the time of the testament was the most powerful philosophical uh current yeah and one other thing which is it, it, philosophy in the ancient world was not uh armchair discipline you didn't find professors just thinking about you know what if you do if you're behind a closed door and some bad guy comes and forces you to make a choice between a and b yeah. Um, it, it was really a, a style of life and it was wisdom. It was the love of wisdom. That's what the word means. It's a mm-hmm. love of wisdom for how to live. And so intellectual tradition also meant back then how you live in the world. Yeah. And so that's what that book was about. The intellectual, the sort of, if, if you have one group saying, this is how you do it. And another group saying, no, this is how you do it. Yeah. Then how do you think about that? And then the the little book that you mentioned. Um, Christianity Surprise is really a, a summation of a lot of that stuff, written in a more popular idiom, and mm. and and sort of asks the question, you know, <laughs> what's Christianity? Yeah. I mean, wh- wh- where did it come from? What? Why is it so surprising when it first emerges in the world? Why were people attracted to it? Yeah. You know, wh- what do we owe to it? Even if we don't like it. Uh, today if we're if we're the sorts of people that that find that there's more wrong with it than right you know what what is it that still that that came into the world with Christianity that that we need to pay attention to Mm
0: -hmm. so so that's a surprise
1: yeah go ahead please
0: yeah so the um I guess there seems to be a a a sense or a spirit of interest in the in the ancient Christianity early Christians more Mm -hmm. so than than when I was younger although I'm only 36 so I'm not that old but um but I am curious if you've seen that or if that's just a, a blip and uh, if that has anything to do with 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 that particular um, Great book. question.
1: It's a great question, Jason. And I mean, there's a, a formal answer, which is you never know whether something's a blip or a rise in general interest until much later. You need a broad yeah. perspective on history to know that. But my, so just anecdotally, that my experience in classroom and with talking with other teachers and other people is that there is a renewed interest in tradition. There's a renewed mm-hmm. interest in stuff like liturgy, even. I mean, yeah. where uh, we have for a long time been kind of rootless, uh, at least in, in America. Yeah. Uh, and, and in some ways, that's part of our DNA. I mean, if you think of our founding <laughs> documents, the Declaration of Independence, when you've got that as your kind of guiding star, you're throwing a yeah. lot yeah. to the side. And so a lot of younger folks are saying, yeah, but how do we find roots? And where can we dig down and go deep? And and where, where can we find a yeah. place we can call home? Um, if we're always moving and, and, all, and we're so mobile and yeah. everything's fast and tech and all that, there, there has been a kind of resurgence and, and a hunger for, for an old wisdom, for stuff that has lasted mm-hmm. and made it through the vicissitudes of human life. Um, and in that sense, I would say there, there has been a, a, a longing uh, that's been awakened uh, for a deeper and more ancient wisdom yeah again it's, well, it may it, not last but that's what I've experienced
0: well and, and we can dive into this more a little bit but um, and I think that's part of also why I, I see a resurgence in Stoicism yeah um, in the modern modern realm I guess the other part of it though is is um, not just an American Christianity but also and, and I don't know if this is a product of the Reformation or just um, modern's uh, interpretation of it but there mm-hmm. I just know growing up there was a distinct uh, disconnect from the tradition of Christianity um, from the point of reformation that essentially as a young person was like, well, they were wrong. They were always wrong. We are right. And, and so we almost just amputate half our body Mm -hmm. in that tradition. Um, And so you know, I don't, I, I, how does the Reformation actually play a part in that, or, or does it, and it's just been twisted over the years?
1: It's a great question. Um, so, uh, uh, um, a kind of caricature of the Reformers is that they thought there wasn't anything really worth paying attention to between Augustine and Mm-hmm. And them, or between Augustine and Luther, once you get past Luther, or between Augustine and Calvin, as you get past Calvin, um, it, it's a caricature in that it does capture some sentiment that emerges out of the Reformation. That they had this watchword or slogan of ad fontes, return to the source, to the sources, return to the sources, and by which uh, they meant principally Scripture, of course, but also patristic uh, theology. And in that way, once it it sort of got rolling in a a very advanced sense, there did tend to be a kind of overlooking uh, of of a long history of stuff between uh, the fourth or fifth century and uh, what came in the modern world. Hmm. But it's not intrinsic to the Reformation. The, The Reformation really isn't about casting stuff yeah. that is worth ca- worth having away, it, it's about making sure that there is a, a Christian life that is accountable to scripture, yeah. and to the way that scripture, and this part wasn't said quite as clearly, because it wasn't seen quite as clearly for a while, but in the way in which scripture was rightly read in the early church, mm-hmm. um, as we've moved past Vatican II, um, in, the, in the Roman Catholic Church, that conference in, in the middle of the 20th century. There has been a, a, a realization, you might say, um, that you, you have more in common with each other than you do with <laughs> the wide rest of the world that has nothing to do with Christianity. Yeah. And therefore a, a willingness to work together on some basic issues like the sanctity of life or, yeah. you know, I mean, just whatever it may be. So, so all that is to say, there is that tendency in reformation based churches and and you can mm-hmm. watch for it, but it's not necessary
0: mm.
1: as a feature of a, a reformed Christian to be polemically set against all tradition that has come from the church. In fact, you can't be. Yeah. um so
0: yeah yeah so i guess on the on the flip side then what i'd be curious to know where you where you kind of run with it when mm-hmm. Al, you know when i look at the work of alistair mcintyre he seems to make the argument that that the tradition of which we all should um uh, attach to is catholicism and, and thomas tom tomism Thomism. so you know how or at least a tradition that that Mm -hmm. integrates into that more specifically Mm -hmm. what are what are your thoughts on that and how does that manifest um, more more modern in a in in today and practically speaking that's a great question
1: too jason you have a lot of good ones um that one's harder to answer without getting pretty technical so let me not do that Uh, (laughs) that helpful but um mcintyre Alistair MacIntyre, for me, is one of the most significant philosophers that Christians can read, and really anybody could read and profit from. Yeah, Um, His basic argument about traditioned inquiry, that you can't think in the world without thinking within a certain kind of tradition, strikes me as exactly correct. I think he's right that that means for christians we think within the christian tradition does that mean that we need to be thomists uh not yet for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's something i think a lot about yeah but uh but not yet um i i don't know that it has to get that specific yeah um, within the broader argument that to me is both
0: compelling and and
1: significant of mcintyre yeah okay
0: so let's let's jump into world upside down. So that's sure. uh that's the um diving into the Greco-Gorm, kind of looking through the Christian's eyes at the world in which they did it. Now you state the book is about the inextricable connection between an irreducibly particular way of knowing and mm-hmm. a total way of life. Mm-hmm. God is the generative source of all. Christians are, at the same time, great Roman citizens in the practical means of its indirect and peacefully driven demise. So ironically, when I was reading the book, it had a a unique mirroring connection for me. It certainly seems like a great deal of Western Christianity fits the profile of the then Roman Empire. Um, So I'm curious, you know, what can we American Christians see and learn about ourselves from that threatened Roman Empire, flipping the paradigm? um and and how can those early christians inspire us in 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 nested with inside of that
1: (laughs) well i mean
0: i think in a lot of ways i mean
1: the first thing to say is is that any um direction from the biblical text that we take which is the point of having a biblical text (laughs) um in a sense uh is to connect us with the, the truest source of direction, of course. But um, the, the way in which God would shape us through the Bible is not um, devoid of the history that came between the Bible's emergence and, and us. So it's, it's not as if you can just jump seamlessly and easily from the first century to the 21st and, and not have 20 centuries of development in between. It's, so all the political questions and so on are complicated. And Worked out in different ways in different times and places, but nonetheless, we keep reading Scripture because we're convinced that um, God speaks to us through Scripture mm-hmm. and directly, and in, and now for now. So, um, part of the, the task is to discern. <clears throat> excuse me. The analogies and and the the typological connections, and mm. with respect to politics, it's complicated, but there's some basic things you can learn from the early Christians that would help at least give us better footing and a, a better sense of where to make good uh, prudential judgments. And one of them is that Christians have their own political ground. Um, we, we don't emerge uh, into a world that sets the terms for us that we have to take. Um, Christianity at the beginning Um, For example, just to take an example, uh, did not have uh, their officials chosen for them in the church by local governments or city councils or anything like that. They had their own independent authority and were bishops, elders, and the rest were generated out of Christians' own sense of who should lead them. And that gave them, right from the beginning, a kind of independence within the larger Roman world of politics. And remember back in the ancient world, it's true for us today too, but we have a grammar that teaches us otherwise, but we just have to remember politics, religion, all that stuff was bound up in one thing. There, there weren't so, you know politics, religion yeah. over here, all that. And that's true today too, but it, in the ancient world, they didn't even try to
0: pretend. Yeah, <laughs> and them. in fact, it seems like that's more, the pretending is less now than it, than it was five, yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah,
1: that's right, that's yeah. right. We're, we're learning very quickly
0: that mm-hmm. the ancients were right—that those things uh, were blended
1: together, for better and worse. Uh, yeah. But um, so, so the Christians did not have, in other words, for them politics determined ahead of time, and in that sense, they were very free, uh, and they were free to be Christian. <laughs> yeah, w- which meant at any given moment they could be um, supportive of some particular thing. Or, as the Romans called them, obstinate and yeah. re- refused to do what yeah, was asked yeah. of them. For example, to sacrifice to the Roman emperor. The, the, Rom- the Romans could not understand why would these people not <laughs> worship the Roman emperor? What's a, a, Why is that a big deal? Yeah. I mean, you just do that and then you yeah. can have your life and whatever and, and they just wouldn't do it. Um, so in that way, part of what we learn is um, the choice is often presented to us as sort of Democrat or Republican or Mm -hmm. X or Y or what and we're not bound to those choices. Yeah, what it would mean to be free of those choices is something the church has has sort of forgotten. And it's what we're trying to relearn. Yeah. Um, But in in the 20th century, we we got pretty hooked to some of those choices in America. And now we're starting to see that maybe maybe that marriage of uh, particular political party and Christianity one way or the other was was a mistake. Yeah. Um, and we're trying to get our own free political ground again.
0: Yeah, I, I think of Pilate, who's sort of caught between the religious leaders and, mm-hmm. and, and Caesar, right? Mm-hmm. His two allegiances, and he doesn't have an allegiance beyond those to be able to um, to, I guess, shed them both. <laughs> yeah. And so he, he crucifies Jesus. So um, and, and I guess in a sense, I, I see that with a lot of leaders that are also Christian and, and their allegiances, um, I guess I long for what you're describing and I hope to see more of that as we go forward. Me too. Me too, Jason. Yeah.
1: It, it's not just writ large at the moment. I mean, but there, <laughs> there, are, there are pockets of it and places where in the world where it, it's life or death to realize you mm-hmm. have your, your own intrinsic yeah. set of goals and concerns and so on mm-hmm. as, as a set of uh, Christian communities, and yeah, I think ahead. that was
0: yeah one of the other things that was I guess with the book you know when you talk about truth and people of the truth mm-hmm. and and you even spoke of Bonhoeffer and Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. and just to recognize how prominent Christianity was in Germany as Nazism yeah. rose, and and to see maybe not in in manifest to the same degree but in, in in the heart level some of those similar dynamics um, mm-hmm. in ourselves mm-hmm. and. And I guess trying to, um, to reconcile that, um, you know, what, what are the ramic, the polit you know, the last part of the book is the politics of truth. And it's not just politics in the sense that we think of it, but the, the, the reality of, of action and, and consequence. So what would you speak into on that dynamic and that facet?
1: Well, I mean, your first comment about how many Christians there were in Nazi Germany, uh, has all, I mean, it's, it's always a question, well, post Nazi Germany, it's a question of, of several things at once. Um, Christians have been complicit with all kinds of evil. And in some ways, it's not surprising um, because wherever human beings show up there's going to be a lot of sin that's one of the things you learn from christianity at least that, yeah. that, <laughs> what we say is true about ourselves and that we can go utterly blind to our own destruction um, seems to be pretty pretty deep in scripture <laughs>
0: yeah
1: um, and in the church's experience um, it doesn't absolve anything it's just to say that that the background of that surprise that Christians can be complicit with such mm-hmm. evil is already the notion that we're not supposed to be. So we're, we're mm-hmm. already looking at the world Christianly when we see Christians in hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that prior vision to see what we would call hypocrisy is yeah. already determined by the gospel. And that's critical to see because it gives us something to return to and to repent of having not been and to try to steer our lives better by. Um, So that's to me really important to to frame the whole question. Um, It would have been amazing, it didn't happen obviously, but had Christians in Nazi Germany been tutored well enough politically in their own independent ground that even 60 or 70 percent of them would have just said no we're not going to do this we can't do yeah. this for christians it would have made it tough I mean, It wouldn't have gotten off the ground in germ so um but obviously that 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 didn't that didn't happen yeah and it's it's tragedy
0: well i i what comes to mind i guess is the what you said earlier about the the early christians um you know sort of being incubated to some degree for a while there there was an aspect of and i don't know if this is the right word, earned. Like they, they work through Mm -hmm. their salvation and, and it grew from there. And, and I guess in perhaps a lot of modern Christianity, people are Christians, um, almost by default or, or through maybe superficial or shallow means. And Mm -hmm. so they're not, I don't know if maturity or redemption is the right word, but there's something lacking in us. If that makes sense.
1: It does make sense. Uh, Bonhoeffer wrote this famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, and there there are a lot of things, and they make good sense uh, to us to hold on to, and if Christianity gets in the way of holding on to those things, we we might just prefer to (laughs) keep our stable lives, and I don't mean just material stuff, but I mean just the the stability of of Mm -hmm. life some of that is possibly coming undone in America, but but by and large we're still in the wake of the dissolution of a Christian America um, mm-hmm. and and therefore have this kind of strange time of both kind of knowing what Christianity is and having entirely forgotten what it is. yeah. Um, and in the, book, the book you mentioned that, that I've written most recently called Christianity Surprise is just a tight, thin, and, and as I say, for regular uh, folks yeah. to read, what I say at the beginning of that is something like that, that we're in a strange time in which we're utterly saturated in our culture by Christian images, mm-hmm. vocabulary, scriptural references, on and on and on. Uh, people at the top level of the government praying, talking about the Bible, you know, all sorts, I mean, usually wrongly, but still <laughs> it's out there. And on the other hand, so we feel like we know what it is. And on the other hand, the prof- more profound and stronger philosophical currents have from a long time been carrying it like a riptide and carrying us away from central Christian commitments. So we're, we're also very uh, much distanced from those and don't really know what it, what it is actually to encounter authentic Christianity. And it's kind of this confusing time where we're sort of both am. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah. And that's part of where we are politically. It's part of where we are culturally. So it's kind of a mishmash, uh, Jason, is, is what I'm getting around to.
0: Yeah, yeah, lots that come to mind. Um, I guess I do want to jump to One True Life, though. Sure. So um, you said earlier just the strength of the Stoic tradition and, and the strength mm-hmm. of the Christian tradition kind of going intersecting and that was yeah. that was interesting and, and I, I think there's a I guess a respect and a um, an appreciation for that strength that you approach with in in the book itself and comparing the two ways of life um, as if you were an adherent to either one although you're not an adherent of, of stoicism you went as far as you possibly could in, in, in that sense so in America we I think what we have is, perhaps not these two dominant traditions as we had then, but really um, countless competing ones um, of different varieties um, that are in in a fragmentation in that sense. And even within Christianity, probably a fragmentation. So I'm curious how your model um, of codifying the two opposing ways of life can point a better way forward for us and how we navigate the current landscape. Great
1: question again. um, hmm. So so let me say a couple of things um, about what I take to be the way that traditions that claim truth for their way of life interface. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them, there's a technical word called non-compossibility it's not one anybody needs to memorize unless you you need to use <laughs> a job or something but what it it actually has a couple of different meanings but the one that that I um, mean is that you can't live in mutually incompatible styles of life at one and the same time and that's true for human beings period
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so we actually find ourselves in a world that competes for our allegiances with the form of our lives. Yeah. And um, when you have uh, traditions that say, um, here is the truth and the truth will set you free. (laughs) And what they mean is, if you live according to the things that we claim are true you will discover in the course of that living in your life the truth that we claim actually is true and that you yeah. actually are free. Yeah. Um, but they say it in ways that mean you can't discover that. It's, you can't live both of those things at the same time. Yeah. Then you're confronted with a kind of, of choice. And um, in the modern world or the, the current world, we have a lot of things clamoring for our attention and claiming that they're true. But but underlying many of those in America is, a, is one story about the human being, which is namely that we are free to make the choice <laughs> between these choices. And, yeah. and that itself is a competing tradition and the name of that tradition, philosophically, not culturally, culturally, yeah. but the name of that tradition philosophically is liberalism. Yeah. And um, it, it suggests, it argues, it believes very strongly with the faith that is like any other <laughs> faith, like the Stoic faith or the Christian faith or whatever, that we are inherently free to make the choices. And nothing impinges us. we can inherently free to make those choices between all the choices that we have to make. Yeah. And that's a prior story. That's the strongest tradition that I know of in America that is current. Mm-hmm. Um, of, of, and, and it's, it's often not, at yeah.
0: in, in competition with the Christian tradition. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Christianity does not think that you are inherently free, originally free that you emerge in the world with a freedom like God's to make your choice. Yeah even even the farthest down the road free will baptist 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 (laughs) that you can get don't actually think that they still think it's the holy spirit that works in you in a way that enables your freedom to make the free choice yeah Um, and that's a very different account from what you get in liberalism or stoicism stoic i mean the stoics were in, in my understanding of them anyway they they have the deepest, outside of Christianity, the deepest view of the human problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they think it is absolutely an extreme amount of work to get yourself under control.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and that if you don't do that, you will likely wreck your life. Yeah. Um, that, that you can't find a way through all these passions. You're kind of just at the mercy of, of stuff like love and anger and hatred and you, you don't know you're like a dog on a leash to all these different passions, but you've got 20 different leashes. So you can't figure out where to go mm-hmm. and your desires are diffuse. Yeah. And if you don't organize all that, you're going to, you're going to pretty well make a, make a mess of it.
0: Yeah. So, well, and, and on that note, I mean, my, my stoic friend would much like I would lament how um, modern Christianity is, is, um, is, a, is a shadow of its former self in some ways, he would, he would say the same thing about modern Stoicism. So what would you say to the, the difference between ancient and modern Stoicism and, and, and what you see going forward in that regard?
1: Well, the first thing I'd say is, I mean, a, a big difference between ancient and Stoicism and any modern forms of it is that there are no, that I know of, strong analogies between the stoic school which was a really f- formal movement i mean a half a millennium of disciples and movements it became more diffuse but but by, by far but really a- and a modern sort of stoic school that would be a globally connected or even a um, in that sort of strong sense i think there are people that are interested in stoicism but it, there's no reason it can't become that or reform to be that or whatever it would be and maybe i'm underselling it i I don't know um but there there wasn't the sense that stoic philosophy could just be used there was a sense that you had to apprentice yourself to teachers there was a sense that you had to be with other stoics in order to develop your stoicism which is a kind of paradox in their tradition because in the end you're you're (laughs) as i understand it you're you're inside your inner fortress and, and you're, you're yourself. Yeah. But you don't really ultimately need these other stoics. You just, you need them to get to a certain place in, in your journey of wisdom. Mm. Um, so there, there's that. Whereas, I mean, the, the Christian claim about church and the body of Christ and all that is, is a stronger social. I'm not even saying which one's right. Just the sociologically or demographically obvious set of community. Catholic Church has a billion members. It's it's kind of hard to (laughs) avoid noting them around the world. Um, So there are are differences that way. But surely the the point of being a people of the book for Christians uh, and and in the Stoic uh, tradition in the ancient world of of being adherents of a tradition is to return again and again to the generative sources uh, and to be around the people whom you know, to exhibit the, the mm-hmm. truth of those sources in their lives.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting about the book and, and also the two traditions in their strongest form is that, um, and, and, and one of the things that you did that I, I never really cared much for Pascal's wager until I read your book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that really, it's like when all things are kind of at a point where you can't, sort of one up the other and it comes yeah. down to one or the other and, and the wager is your life, which wager will you make? Um, so that, that's really, really interesting to me. Um, and, and, and perhaps that's, that's what ha- what it unfolded in Rome was it was life against life. And, and when the Roman Stoics saw the Christian's life and what they were doing, it, it was that next level. Um, so I'm curious, um, you know, in, uh, you know, in, um, the Three Rival Versions of Moral Inquiry by Alastair McIntyre, he talks about you know, the encyclopedic, the genealogical, and the atomics tradition. Um, is there one way that these rivals might prevail over the others? One mm-hmm. possible answer was was supplied by Dante, that moral narrative prevails, which is able to include its rivals within itself, not only to retell their stories as episodes within its own story, but to tell the story of the telling of their stories as such episodes. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious when you when you look at Christianity and Stoicism, is is that possible to do with either of them or both?
1: It's a great question. Um, I mean, ultimately the Christian claim is that all things are intelligible inside the story of god and his creation Mm -hmm. Uh, we claim that there's a story of everything that's the the language i use in christian surprise there's god and there's everything that god made and there's nothing else that's Mm -hmm. it god and not god and um, god made all that's not god and so there's a sense in which yes ultimately the rival traditions like Stoicism and so on would be capable of being narrated inside the Christian story Mm -hmm. at the, uh, what you might call the phenomenological level, or just to kind of, if you were to set them down on a piece of paper, one on this piece of paper, one on that piece of paper, and see if this one could incorporate that one or that one incorporate this one. Um, that's, that's a little harder to see in any kind of immediate sense. The place where I think that Christianity... Now, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so of course I think this, but yeah, that's that's the point about reasoning in general is that I couldn't reason otherwise, nor do other people reason outside the traditions that within which they reason. So it's just the way rationality works. But anyway... Um, I mentioned earlier this account of the self and of the human being that's so deep in stoicism. There are three things that come to mind um, that circle around this. One is Stoic, the other is Aristotelian, and the third is Christian. So um, if you look at basic question, like what kind of trouble are we in as human beings? Why why is it that it seems (laughs) to us like it's hard to be human? Yeah. You know, it's not hard for a dog to be a dog. It's just a dog. And, yeah. and, there's, and there's no rational capacity. So it doesn't think, I wonder if it's hard to be a dog. It just is a dog. Um, but then it's not rational capacity that makes it hard to be a human by itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you could imagine forms of existence in which it would be rationally easy to be a human. Yeah. Or, for example, angel, in Christianity, angels that are unfallen. They're sentient, yeah. but, but they're not sinful. And not, it's not hard to be an angel who's unfallen. They just <laughs> are that. So uh, why is it that it's so difficult for us, and why do we make messes of ourselves, and, and wreck relationships, and cause wars, and you know all this stuff? And um, the Aristotelian answer—this is all very dumbed down, simplistic, et cetera—but the basic answer was that the way to be in the world fruitfully, to find joy or happiness, all that stuff they they sought after, eudaimonia, uh, sort of well-being in the world, uh, was to moderate your passions and your desires. So you find this kind of golden mean. You don't love too much, or you might get hurt too much, or you might get out of control too much, but it's it's okay to love some. Yeah. Stoics come along and say, no, that's a vast underestimation of the power of the passions and of the power of your desires. Yeah. You think you're that strong. You think you're that self-control, but you're not. Yeah. If you, if you give it an inch, it'll take a mile. Yeah. Uh, if you think you can be just a little bit angry, you wait till you know something you <laughs> have and you will. And um, they, they came along and said, actually, the problem with the self is deeper than the Aristotelians think.
0: Yeah. It's
1: not simply reformable by finding a kind of balance. You've got to amputate. Yeah. And you're only going to be safe in the world and safe inside yourself to the degree that you can cut off those passions and those desires and master them. Mm -hmm. And once you've mastered them, you can actually discover a profound freedom in a way to be in the world that will lead to your joy and your happiness. Mm -hmm. The Christians say it's actually an illusion that you can get mastery over those things. The Stoics are right. You're not powerful enough to control yourself with moderation. You can't just kind of try to be moderate. Because there's this problem in there called the will. It's not just desire. It's not just passion. It's not just knowledge. Um, it, it is there's a fundamentally screwed up thing in there that you can't untwist by means of your best self-control. What you actually need is to be set free by an external power, mm-hmm. something that can set you free. Um, that can change your allegiance for you and then get you going in a way that you can then become Mm -hmm. what it is to be in the world and be joyful. But it's also
0: a frightening revelation to recognize that my redemption is outside myself Mm -hmm. and in the reliance of which I am for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So in that way, I do think the Christians give an account of the of the human levels of the of the self and the problems we see that can include that, c- that does include the stoic insight into the, the
0: power yeah. of that. and i guess on that note i'll, I'll kind of ask my last question with regard sure. to um your your last book which was christianity surprise and when i read it and and thought about it i thought of Gerald tolkien's a quote about the eucatastrophe, which is a sudden turn of events preventing a seemingly inevitable tragedy. And he says, the resurrection was the greatest U catastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow, because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow at one reconciled as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. So is the fact that we're not as surprised as we ought to be? Due to our failure, as you kind of were alluding to, of recognizing the scope and scale of the tragedy we humans are facing, and the severity of which was required to rectify through the cost paid by God to redeem us, are we too far removed from those events and beneficiaries of it that we miss the shoulders of which we stand?
1: So yeah, I mean, um, the it's complex. So. In some formal sense, yes. Uh, If it's true that liberalism, again, not liberals, conservatives as in the cultural war sense, but as in a philosophical tradition that teaches things about the individual being entirely free uh, within that individual. Um, If that's a very strong tradition, then what we've learned to see is that we're basically free and good and that it's kind of up to us to be that in the world. And that makes it very difficult to understand what it is we need to be rescued from mm-hmm. um, and so there was a, a famous book uh, I think Meninger was his name but I can't remember suddenly it, it left but in the in the 20th century called whatever happened to sin and the book was uh, charting the loss of sin vocabulary with the rise of kind of therapeutic vocabulary yeah um, and so it, it is the case that if if we don't think that the problem is really that deep, then we don't need that much of a rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're not so surprised to learn uh, in a kind of gutting of the gospel that Jesus is here to validate our desires and, and to help us get what we want uh, in yeah. the world and make us feel fulfilled and all that sort of uh, trash. The, it. that that doesn't connect us with early Christianity or with the power of the gospel at all. Um, On the other hand, there's a long tradition in Christianity itself, which says that you can't see the depth of your problem until you've been given the grace to see it all. Mm. Uh, We typically talk about that as prevenient grace. Grace comes first. It comes out ahead of your ability to acknowledge your sin. Otherwise you don't, you don't see it as sin. You see it as just something else, a problem or whatever you want to overcome. So, so there is a way in which we don't see our problem and therefore miss the grace, but there's another way in which the the surprise is really the, the joy and, and the, the liberation from self and and the freedom to be in love uh, with God and with what God loves. And, um, the word that you use from Tolkien, of course, he was a master philologist, but the eucatastrophe, that E-U yeah. in Greek, that's the preface that means Yahoo, yay, joy, good, mm. whatever. So um, the word for gospel is euangelion, which just is announcement, angelion, with with good on yeah. the front on it. Um, so that's a great word. <laughs> yeah. And that is part of what we're missing, is just that the, the early Christians really believed that they had absolutely wonderful tidings, yeah. And so they weren't saying, "Hey, you know how deep the problem is." That's when you get into more of the philosophical analysis of what's really wrong with humanity and why it's hard to be human. But but when you're just announcing the gospel, they believed it was gospel. It was good news. They had great stuff to share that would bring joy. Yeah, and that's in part what I what I think of when I think of Christianity Surprise, What we're missing. Mm -hmm. is is that sense of the remarkable thing that we've been given in christianity and that we have the chance to embrace and to be and it's joyful
0: yeah and that's where the narrative part is so powerful and and i think our our narratives movies books they scream all this out um but often i guess in christianity we can kind of forget like what's happening on lord of the rings is what's happening in reality to a degree yeah that's right. right that's right so I know you got to get going, so what are your final words, thoughts, uh, insights for us?
1: Well, Jason, first let me just say thanks again for having me. It's, it's been great to catch up with you and to, and to talk through some of these things. Um, I, I think I would just end on what I said, that, that the um, if your readers were, uh, an audience were to start with one of those books, that Christianity Surprise might be the place to begin. It's easy to read. It's um, really about uh, so many things that bring joy, yeah, and um, a recovery of a kind of of delight in the chance we have to be Christian. Um, Christians have so much bad press, and much of it deserved. <laughs> um, but there is something wonderful, yeah, uh, that's given in the gospel, and it's given in in, in the uh, gift that God gave when He gave. Uh, Christianity to the world. And, and so I think that's what I would end on, that there is a joy, uh, there's a wonder, there's stuff to discover, um, and, 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 and it can surprise us.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for sharing. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Jason. Take care. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.